Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now here's a question for you. Did transatlantic slavery and colonial borders wreck West African women's movements? Africa's parliaments are increasingly gender equal, thanks largely to quotas. But there is a curious heterogeneity. Southern and Eastern African legislators have near parity, while West Africans are ruled by men. Nigeria's parliament is 94% male. In this short podcast, I'm going to assess common explanations. Tradition colonizes male bias, contemporary sexism and civil war. But they all fail to explain why West Africa is such an outlier. Instead, I suggest that women's movements face insurmountable obstacles in West Africa, owing to ethno-religious fragmentation, which was exacerbated by the transatlantic slave trade. Let's see if you're convinced. So, first of all, does West Africa have more patriarchal traditions? No! West Africans used to revere women's spiritual authority. They were respected as creator gods and goddesses, priestesses, oracles, deities and queen mothers. Cosmology upheld gender complementarity. The Asanthi, Igbo and Yoruba also had dual-sex systems of governance. Women had independent networks and separate spheres of influence. Markets were controlled by women who set the rules and punished wrongdoers. Banding together, women reprimanded abusive men and traversed great distances as traders. Independently wealthy women marshaled their networks, their commercial acumen and linguistic skills to thrive in coastal exports. Back in the 16th century, Hausa Queen Amina was a successful military strategist. She led armies and conquered new territories. Well, why were women historically important to religion, politics and commerce in the Gulf of Guinea? Well, geography plays a role. It mediated cultural evolution. Tropical forests incubated parasites and pathogens like dengue fever, tuberculosis, malaria, leprosy, typhus. Many children died, yet their labour was keenly sought. These communities valued wealth in people. High infant mortality combined with land abundance sustained a perpetual demand for labour. Although societies in the Gulf of Guinea were often patrilineal, this specifically concerned control over their children, not inherited wealth. By paying a bright wealth, grooms gained control over the children. And that reverence for fertility may help explain why a girl's first period was followed by initiation rituals celebrating female powers of fertility. So too in cosmology, women were revered as creators. The Gulf of Guinea's tropical forests were also plagued by the setse fly. This parasite causes deaths in cattle. Elsewhere in Africa, nomadic pastoralism spread through male bias migration. Pastoralists killed indigenous men, reproduced with women, and institutionalized male dominance. Only married men could speak at village assemblies among the pastoral Swana and Maasai. Whereas the Igbo in southern Nigeria listened to both men and women. So, as I'm saying, the disease ecology shaped the process of cultural evolution. Islam spread south of the Sahara via trade routes, especially among pastoralists. When Hausa city-states adopted Islam over 500 years ago, aristocratic women lost public positions of power. 
patriarchal governance heightened in the 18th and 19th centuries when the pastoral fuller launched jihads and instituted Sharia law. Men were instructed to control and veil their wives. Captured slaves replaced female farm labour. Seclusion marked honourable freeborn status. As colonisers constructed roads and railways, Islamic preachers travelled more widely, providing spiritual guidance. So Islam spread, but not in regions with the cattle killings that say fly. In the Gulf of Guinea, therefore, women continued to move freely and maintain autonomy through solidarity. Igbo and Bakweri women harassed men for mistreating their wives, violating market rules or harming their crops. In 19th century Congo Brazzaville, a husband would not even take an egg from her chicken coop, I quote, without permission from his wife. In the early 20th century, women in southern Nigeria and Côte d'Ivoire marshaled their independent networks to mobilize en masse against imperialism. But if the Gulf of Guinea was traditionally relatively gender equal, what explains male dominance today? Could it be colonizers' male bias? That's, that's the most common explanation. I think it's wrong. Colonizers are often faulted by feminists for favoring men in agricultural extension and wage labor, promoting female domesticity while imposing male bias legislation, language and warrant chiefs. That's absolutely all true. But how large and long-standing were those effects? Colonialism could have only heightened gender inequalities if most African men prospered. But colonial bureaucracies were tiny. State penetration was weak. Agricultural support was meagre. And labour markets were minuscule. The vast majority of African men did not benefit from colonialism. Colonisers, a century ago, also disregarded women's village networks. But did that prohibit urban African women from organising today? I think not. In southern and eastern Africa, a few men gained advantages, warrant chiefs, but that has not precluded feminist activism and gender quotas. Uganda now has more female legislatures than the UK. So, colonizers did neglect women, but that does not explain the West African outlier. Okay, here's another theory, exceptional sexism. No, Women in the Gulf of Guinea do not suffer exceptional discrimination relative to the rest of the continent. Early marriage has fallen rapidly. Female employment and entrepreneurship are high. In Ghana and Nigeria, women comprise over a third of senior managers. The gender gap in property ownership in southern Nigeria is relatively small. A third of Ghana's Supreme Court justices are women. Women also comprise 20% of mayors in West Africa's capitals. From Côte d'Ivoire to Cameroon, independently wealthy Mama Benz, as they're called, own fleets of chauffeur-driven Mercedes. In narrating their life histories, Ghanaian women focus on their independent businesses, their commercial prowess. Nationally representative social surveys by Afrobarometers suggest that preference for male leaders is generally no greater in West Africa than Southern or Eastern Africa, though it is higher in uh, Niger and Nigeria. So there is not an issue of a difference in gender ideologies for West Africa as a whole, certainly not in the Gulf of Guinea. Okay, what about post-conflict transition? 
Regime transitions and post-conflict nation-building have provided opportunities for women's movements to press for gender quotas. Eager for donor funding, authoritarians have often used quotas to strengthen international legitimacy. Might that explain the West African outlier? Not really. Civil wars are neither necessary nor sufficient for female representation. Liberia, Nigeria and the Republic of Congo have all been torn apart by conflicts, and yet their parliaments remain 90% male. Meanwhile, in Tanzania, Estuani, Lesotho, Zimbabwe, they have enforced gender quotas even though they have not recently undergone civil wars. So although many political scientists have attributed Africa's high female leadership to civil wars and authoritarianism, I suggest this is because they typically examine the effects of X rather than the causes of Y. And that blinds us to West Africa's exceptionalism. Now, let me come to my preferred explanation, the transatlantic slave trade and colonial borders. In West Africa, ethno-religious fragmentation has been an obstacle to the formation of mass women's movements. Activists must overcome ethnic and religious divisions in order to advance their interests politically, and they cannot rely on an otherwise homogeneous gender-based identity. Yet, women who primarily identify with their ethnicity may have little appetite for such campaigns, preferring to be governed by co-ethnics. An Igbo woman may want an Igbo ruler. Not just some random woman, not a houser woman. And even if women privately support gender quotas, distrust may dampen their willingness to invest in sustained mobilization. Activism then becomes sporadic. And all of this, these ethno-religious divisions and distrust, has been exacerbated by the historical legacies of the slave trade, colonialism, as well as the arrival of Islam and Christianity. In the transatlantic slave trade, 12 million enslaved people were taken from Africa to the Americas. A further 6 million were exported in other trades. In the struggle to survive, people kidnapped neighbours, family and friends. Intensive raiding and insecurity appears to have long-run cultural effects, as shown by Nathan Nunn and Leonardo Wanchekon. Africans who distrusted others may have been more likely to evade capture and then socialise their children to be distrustful. Today, distrust of relatives, neighbours and local government remains higher in places that suffered intensive raiding. West Africa suffered most severely from the transatlantic slavery and is now marred by acute ethnic divisions, stratification and distrust. Colonial borders compounded these effects by grouping multiple ethnicities into large states, imposing nationhood where there was none. The politicization of ethnicity also affects presidential responsiveness. Ghana's leaders have always prioritised regional balance. Hence, women are less likely to be appointed to African cabinets where ethnicity is heavily politicized. Religion. Religion is also important here. West Africa is marred by religious divisions. Muslims comprise 43% of the population in Nigeria, 43% in Cote d'Ivoire, 30% in Togo. Sectarian violence has greatly increased over the past 20 years. Two-thirds of Ghanaians and Cameroonian Christians perceive Muslims as violent. This religious 
distrust impedes nationwide feminist activism. Muslim-majority countries also tend to express less support for gender equality. Within Africa, a country's level of development as measured by per capita GDP, human development, the size of the non-agricultural labor force, urbanization and mass communication has zero influence on gender ideologies. Religion is what really matters in shaping gender ideologies. Gender segregation persists in northern Nigeria. Muslim clerics have vehemently opposed women's rights legislation. In Nigerian states with Sharia law, women are far less likely to undertake paid work in the public sphere, and there is strong opposition to female leaders. State governance is overwhelmingly male. Northern Nigeria, Mali, Niger and Chad have persistently high rates of child marriage. Unlike northern Nigeria, however, Senegal was never subject to a fuller jihad. Before colonialism, clerics were merely advisors, not rulers. Senegal is also majority Sufi, believing in a direct personal connection with God. So this And this religious tolerance has been iteratively institutionalized by post-colonial leaders and communities. For example, Catholics and Muslims have rebuilt each other's mosques and churches. In this more tolerant environment, a strong women's movement relentlessly lobbied for a gender quota. They chorused, let's strengthen democracy with gender parity. And like other African leaders that have amplified female leadership, President Wade's party was electorally dominant. This enabled Wade to allocate more seats to women without forfeiting vital patronage. As a result of this more tolerant atmosphere, Senegal's parliament is now 43% female. But within West Africa, it is very much the exception. So let me summarize. West African women once exercised authority, such as through dual-sex systems of religious and political governance. But they have suffered a reversal of fortunes. Although women are individually entrepreneurial, national governance is overwhelmingly male. Plausible hypotheses include patriarchal traditions, colonizers' male bias, contemporary sexism and civil wars. But these all fail to explain the West African outlier. West Africa is exceptional for its ethno-religious divisions and distrust. They were exacerbated by transatlantic slavery and the imposition of colonial borders. History is not destiny, of course. Democratization and women's legislative representation improve gender parity in cabinet portfolios. Urbanization promotes ethnic homogeneity. But ethno-religious divisions can also be worsened, such as through drought-induced competition for pasture and subnational competition for oil rents. But let me summarize my grand proposition. I suggest that without the transatlantic slave trade and colonial borders, West Africa would have stronger feminist coalitions and more gender-equal governance. But let me know what you think. Your comments and critique are always welcome. This is Rocking Your Prize, and I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Take care.